Matthew 12, as Carlin said, we're not, we're not going to go through all of Matthew 12. Um, it's just too much to do this morning. We're going we're gonna to be in the, in the kind of the, the beginning and, and the first part of it, if you will. Um, and and I, I would say this, I think that Matthew 12 bears some connection to Matthew 11. Uh, and, and it's on the heels of at the end of Matthew 11, where it's this invitation that Jesus makes to come and to rest in him, that, that when we're, where we're weary and where we're burdened, and to let that go and to come and to learn what it means to rest in him. And, and then we go into Matthew 12, and there's these, these sort of these, these very intentional, clear contrasts here that we see, this between freedom and enslavement, between healing and woundedness, and good and evil. And, and Jesus speaks really clearly to all these things in the midst of, of the dialogue and, what, and where he's at in Matthew 12. And, you know, as I, was, as I was looking and reading and thinking about Matthew 12, the thing that stood out to me, and I, and I hope that I can do this this morning, is that it's just really simple. Like, there's a simplicity of the good news of Jesus that we see here in Matthew 12 that... Is, is not complicated. It's, it's very simple, and it's, it's very simple offers, like this or that. And, and in the middle of Matthew 12, there's this, this statement by Jesus that, that also asks, us of some, asks something of us. It gives us a choice, and that is, he says, it, 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 you're either with me or you're against me. And, and he doesn't, like, he doesn't try to soften it again. Like, so many things with Jesus, he's not trying to soften it. He just, he just says it. Like, you're either working with me or you're against me. And it's, it's this choice. He's putting a choice before the people, and he's putting a choice before us. Where are we? And, and it's, it's striking because he doesn't offer a middle ground. He doesn't offer a gray area. It's this or that. And there's a lot of that in Matthew 12 for us. And so my title today is a response to that. And, and, my, and so that is, let's, let's be with Jesus. When he says, are you with me? Are you against me? Well, then what's the response? I want the response to be, I'm with you, Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm with you. Right? And I, and I, and I, I, I hope and, and pray that that's our desire this morning, that that's the, the posture we have. It's like, yes, we want to be with you, Jesus. You know, and, and again, this is, this is the fifth message, if you will, that we're, we're working through Matthew, if you will. I felt the Lord tell us to camp here in Matthew. And, and I want to, you know, maybe remind myself even, while reminding us, of what, where this came from. And, 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 and for me, it was this, this real passion or, or this real sense from the Holy Spirit of like, I desire to see Jesus through this. I, I want to see Jesus. I want us to see Jesus in a new, fresh, powerful way as we go through these chapters, that we're, we're encountering this Jesus and we're going, whoa. And, 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 and you know, we see the stuff that's going to excite us. There's stuff that we're going to read and we're going to write, yes. And then we're going to have stuff that I, I, we don't understand. I don't, I don't know if I understand that. And then we're going to see, we're going to encounter the stuff that we find hard and difficult because Jesus has a fair bit of that in there too for us. And, and this is the thing about Matthew 12. He's having more confrontations. 
Matthew 12, again, is full of these confrontations he's having as he's bringing about and introducing his kingdom and his way. And, And amidst these confrontations that Jesus is having, I'd suggest that we see these three desires that he has for us. And so that's what I want to kind of highlight and unpack this morning a little bit for us. First is that Jesus desires to set us free. He desires that you would live a life of freedom in him and that you would not be hindered in any way from living to his way. And so we see this in the first part here of Matthew 12. And I'm not, I'm not going to read everything this morning. Um, but, but the synopsis here, the first eight verses, is that Jesus, he's, it's the Sabbath. And him and his disciples are walking through these grain fields. And his disciples, they are, they're hungry. And so they eat, they pick, and they eat some of the grain. That's a big no-no. For, for the religious leaders of the day, that was a big no-no that they would do this on the Sabbath because there was a whole bunch of laws and rules, the Pharisaic code, that said, you can't do this. You can't glean, you can't eat, you can't do any of that on the Sabbath. Better that you are starving than you would profane the Sabbath. And so this, his disciples doing this sets in motion this confrontation. And they come and they say, what are you doing? And Jesus responds by citing Two examples from the Old Testament where he's saying, well, what about when David ate the bread that was, that was sacred? And, and what about the priests who serve in the temple on the Sabbath? And because it's the Sabbath, they actually have more sacrifices on the Sabbath. And so they're actually technically doing more work on the Sabbath. What do you guys do with that? Jesus is like, what do you do with that, guys? Come on. Like, we're, we're eating a little bit of grain. Really? What's your problem? You think Jesus did it like that? I think he might have. Like, maybe Jesus like, what? You have a problem? <laughs> Probably not. But, but maybe it's not obvious in these verses, but this is the underlying issue here that Jesus is getting at. It's the lack of freedom that they're living in. Right? They're caught up in all of these observances. They're caught up in all of these rituals. There's lots of rules. And what did we sing about this morning? And what's Jesus focusing on here? Jesus came to give you life. He didn't come to give you a whole list of observances and rituals and practices. He came that we would have life. And so this is what he says here to them. He says, I desire mercy. I'm not looking for sacrifice. What he's saying there is, I'm looking for the heart, guys. I'm not looking for legalism. I'm not into all this legalistic stuff. I'm, what's going on here? See, and, and the Pharisees, we, we paint the Pharisees so badly, right? Like, Pharisees do not have a good rep. They are, like, we just look at them, they're, they're the worst. But, but just for a second, back up and consider the Pharisees. They, they were passionate in their commitment to the covenant that God had made with his people. I mean, that was like, they were all in 110% into the covenant that God had made. And the covenant was what? It was centered around the law. So what did they do? Well, if the, if, if the covenant is all about the law, then we're going to build up this law and we're going to keep stacking all sorts of rules and observances and rituals on it because this is what's going to make us acceptable before God. 
And we do this, and we're keeping, we're, we're proving, if you will, that we're keeping the covenant. And so this is, like, they were, they were so passionate about this. They were ready to die for their observance to the law. 100%. And so this conviction, right, it, it, that they had this, it leads them to, to all these observances that they have around picking grain on the Sabbath being one of those things. And, and again, Jesus in this, he's not saying, right, don't, don't hear through our cultural lens, anything goes. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus didn't say, I'm, I, he said, I came to abolish the law. Is that what he said? No, he said, no, I didn't actually come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill it. I came to show you what the purpose of the law was. And so, you know, it wasn't this anything goes. It wasn't, hey, just, just follow your heart, which is today's euphemism for just do whatever makes you feel good. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. Jesus clearly said, I'm here to fulfill the law. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us there's this contrast. There's freedom or there's enslavement. What do you want? And, it, you know, it, when, when, I'm, when I'm reading this and, and as we're going to go on, I, f- I feel like throughout Matthew 12, Jesus is kind of walking out, if you will, for us. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Like, I feel like that's what he's kind of, he's, he's modeling, working out. He's at, through these confrontations, he's saying, I came that you guys would have life. Life. He came that you would have life here today, now in your life. Not rituals, not observances. Right? Because the Pharisees, they were caught in this track of behavioral modification, if you will. And, and it led to their inability to see Jesus and for who he was and his offer of life. They were, they just, they were blinded to who he was. And when Matthew, when he's writing this gospel too, at the time he's writing this later on, the Pharisees were still the dominant voice around. They were the dominant voice in the synagogue where, where Christians would still, you know, Christians were still meeting in the synagogue at that point, right? Followers of Jesus. And so their influence was, was everywhere still amongst the followers of Jesus. We see this in Galatians where there's this, this pressure from this group of, of Jewish sympathizers who, who say to the church there, you know, you've got to embrace, embrace Jewish law if you're going to follow Jesus. You, you can't follow Jesus without embracing the law. And the apostle Paul, he, who he said, I'm, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like he knew the law. He was, man, that got Paul really, really passionate. He's like, no way, guys. Like, no, 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 no. Do not embrace the law. So, Jesus has this confrontation and then, it, and then it says that in verse 9, it says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And there's this man there that has this shriveled hand. And, and it says there in verse 10, it says that the, the leaders, the Pharisees, they were looking for a way to bring charges against Jesus. So they, they were trying to bait him. They see Jesus come in. They know this man with the shriveled hand is there. They know it's the Sabbath. They probably have an inkling of what Jesus, kind of his M.O. and what he might do. 
And they're, they're, they're can, we, can we bait them? Can, can we get them? Can we finally get them? They were trying to discredit Jesus. And, and you know, the question of, that they asked him about whether it's lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath was a trick question. It, it wasn't actually against Jewish law, but it was against the Pharisaic code that they had added to the law. And so that's why technically a sheep that had fallen into a pit could be saved because the sheep's life was in danger. And so, well, you can break the Pharisaic code for that, but a man with a shriveled hand, doesn't matter what kind of condition he's in, that's not life-threatening. Jesus, you can't touch that. Can't do it. And Jesus is like, so wait, you're telling me this sheep, you can do that, and you can't heal the guy with, with the hand. And Jesus is like, whatever, guys. <laughs> like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. See, the Pharisaic code wasn't about mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus knew, he knew in that moment, I do this, man, the gloves are going to be off. Like, I am going to infuriate these, these Pharisees. They are going to be ready to go against me. And the reality is that this Pharisaic spirit can be within us as well. Whoa. This Pharisaic spirit can be in us. No, I thought it was them. Them, over there. It can be in us to adhere to custom, appearances, image, at the expense of spiritual life. This, this was about cultural norms, this was about image, this was about behavior management that disregarded the most important factor, the state of the heart. Oh, we don't deal with that anymore. Right? We don't deal with that, any of that anymore. It's not all that different today, but there's a, I'll offer that there's a slight shift that has huge implications. Maybe it's not even a slight shift, but it has huge implications for us. And that is, we don't disregard the heart so much as we embrace the heart now as inherently good and pure. So there's this commonly held belief now that, that's everywhere. It seeps into everything. That what we feel and want reveals the essence of who we are and the core of our hearts. This is why you hear the message all the time. Follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. How can you deny what the heart wants? Go after what your heart wants. Breaks a marriage? Go after your heart. Results in an adulterous relationship? Go after your heart. It's, it's everywhere. It's a dominant ideology in our culture, right? This that desires and feelings cannot be wrong. They, they can't be wrong because they flow from our hearts, which are inherently good. Our hearts are inherently pure. And so it's the essence, your feelings and what you feel are the essence of who you're meant to be. So embrace it. We have linked our hearts, i.e. our feelings and desires, to our identity. 
And so, we carefully try to manage our behavior. We try to curate our image to, to fit what we present to others. We do this, we come in and we do this all the time. Depending on how it will benefit and serve our needs. But Jesus had a really different view of the heart, along with all of Scripture. And his view was, yes, from the heart can come good, but from the heart comes a lot of evil as well. And we know, we know, we know that we know that we know this is a reality if we just stop to allow ourselves to be silent and to feel what's going on inside of us or the way that we treat some people versus these other people. The premise of of the book, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, is that his whole premise in that book is we are in a spiritual war. Like, not, not to be overly dramatic, but... But when we come in here this morning, do you know that we are spiritually at war? Right now. Right now, in this place, we are in a spiritual battle. Always. This war is waging between the forces of evil and the forces of God. All the time. And, and his, in that book, his, his main premise is that Satan's strategy is to sow deceptive ideas into our minds that play to disordered desires within us. So in our flesh, in our sinful being, that there's these disordered desires that that Satan is trying to play to that are normalized then. It's all good. It's normal. It's celebrated. It's embraced in a sinful society. It's all good. And whether we label ourselves Christians or not, this is what we face. And we have zero chance, not even, not even a smidge of a chance to defeat this apart from Jesus. We, we, we are totally hopeless. We are going to just get mowed down. It's over, guys. It's over for you if, you do the, if we try to do this apart from Jesus. The world will eat you up, spit you out, and it'll, you, will, you will fully embrace that ideology. That, it is that serious. It's freedom or it's enslavement. But Jesus desires to set you free from this. He desires that you would have life. That you would not embrace that. And no one and nothing else, nothing can do this apart from Jesus, except Jesus. Second thing I want to I, I pull out from here is that Jesus desires to heal us. So he goes on, and verses 15 to 21, he, it says there he tries to withdraw he wants to get away because it says he's, he's aware. He's aware that the Pharisees are trying to kill him. So he withdraws. This large crowd follows him. And it says he heals them all. 
it's, it's just those little, again, one of these little nuggets where it's like, and he heals them all. And you wonder, like, is this, is this the desire of the people to follow him? It's like, we know that we need Jesus. And so Matthew, in, in explaining this, he sees this connection as the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. And that's what verses 18 to 21 are. They're, they're directly taken out of Isaiah 42. And I, and I think that the placement of Isaiah's words here, alongside Jesus' healing people, is meant to reveal part of what Jesus came to do. It's, it's speaking of the justice and the hope that Jesus will bring to the nations as he moves in the power of the Spirit. It speaks of the victory that he's going to bring to hurting people. It speaks of the bruised reed he will not break, the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know, it's, that, that's speaking to the tenderness and the care of Jesus ministering to our woundedness. You know, and there's a part of it, like when you read through Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21 can almost seem a little bit out of place with, with kind of the flow of the chapter. But Matthew 12, 7, I, I, I said it there, I desire mercy but not sacrifice. That's pointing back to Hosea 6. And that's, Hosea 6 is, is, it's incredible when you read Hosea 6 in light of Matthew 12. Hosea 6, 2, it it's, says, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. That we may live in his presence. Do you, do you think about Hosea 2? After two days, he will revive us. On the third day. Read that in light of Jesus' resurrection. And the light bulbs start going off, like all of it, right? That we may live in his presence. And then it goes on, Hosea 6 goes on. Let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Let us press in, press on. And that's where verse 6 comes in Hosea 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that verse goes on. The knowing of me, God says, rather than burnt offerings. This isn't speaking about intellectual knowledge of Jesus. This is speaking about that intimate relationship with Jesus. Press in. Let us go on to know him, to know the Lord. And that no matter our condition, this is what Hosea 6, if you turn there and you look, it, it, no matter the condition that we are in, that we would return to him, that we would allow him to heal us and have relationship together. And I think that's the key right there. Hosea 6 is the key to understanding verses 15 to 21 and what Matthew's doing here. Amidst the accusations against Jesus, amidst Jesus exposing the wickedness of the human heart, is the invitation, come, come. Be healed. Come and find healing where you're dealing with woundedness. This is where, again, it ties back to Matthew 11. Right? Where you're weary, where you're dealing with burdens. Come and find rest. Come and find healing. We all know pain. We all know hurt. We all 
no betrayal. We all experience and know the hypocrisy of other Christians. We know the inclination to wickedness in our own hearts to live counter to the ways of Jesus. We know it. So do we see ourselves as the bruised reed? Do we see ourselves as the smoldering wick that is just about to go out? And Jesus comes and puts his hand around the smoldering wick, around that little ember that's about to go out, and Jesus is like, that's not going out. That's, that's not going out. I'm going to fan that little wick into an incredible flame. I'm going to straighten, I'm going to heal the bruised reed. You know, I was having a conversation with someone this week about what COVID has done in people. And and what I mean is the last two and a half years and the things that it's brought to the surface. The the extent of self-centered behavior alongside this limited or lack of self-awareness. Right, this thing of it's, it's just like, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do and there's no accountability. And I wonder if we're exploring or if we're considering in our lives the healing that we need after the last two and a half years. Do you consider what has happened inside of you in the last two and a half years? And the healing that Jesus perhaps needs to do. The impact in our bodies of the emotions that we have lived through. You know, I was thinking about that this week and what, how, how everything sort of transpired with that. You know, and, and for me, there was the isolation of, of my role as a pastor, coupled with the responsibilities that, that rose out of what we were going through, alongside navigating the most complex set of opinions, various opinions that I have ever encountered in life, while dealing with my own weaknesses. Through that. Do you know what that's been like? It's been brutal. That's the sanitized version. It's been brutal. There's aspects of the last two and a half years I have hated. And we've all encountered things in the last two and a half years that have been horrible. And we're not talking a lot about it. You know, because the easiest, by far, the easiest solution to all this is to just ignore, bury, pretend, self-medicate. That doesn't bring healing. The thing about Jesus' healing is that it involves death. After two days, it says there in Hosea 6, he will revive us. Do you know what, what, what state was Jesus in for the first two days in the tomb? What state was he in? He was dead, physically dead. 
but the third day. Following Jesus requires us and calls us to death. It, it is. Following Jesus is surrender, it's dying to self, and then it's continuing to die to self. That, that is the call to follow Jesus. This is why baptism, right, is such a necessary step for us if we're going to call Jesus Lord, is that we are stating, we are symbolically saying, I am dying with you, Jesus, so that I can be raised to newness of life. That, that's, that's the mercy and the kindness of Jesus, right? It's like, you're telling me I have to die? Yeah. But what does Jesus say? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even in death, there is the promise of resurrection life. For those, those, of, those who are in Christ, for those who are in Jesus, they do not taste death. Ever. Ever. Death is defeated. It's gone. If you are in Christ, death is out the window. Do you think about that? You will not have to face death. Not, not ultimately. We have to face physical death on this earth, yes. Consider our culture. And, and this, this we, 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 like we avoid the reality of death at all costs. We don't want to talk about it. We, we, we hide it away in the back of funeral homes. We, don't, we do not want to deal with it. Oh, no, we'll celebrate it tomorrow. We have this weird fascination with celebrating death tomorrow. We'll do that. We'll, we'll watch all sorts of horror flicks. We'll, we'll watch all sorts of stuff on the screen that, that portrays grisly death. But we won't talk about real death. We don't, we don't, we don't, don't want to really touch that. Death is a reality. Death is something that we will face. And if we're in Christ, we have to face death as the doorway to healing. Have to. Lastly, Jesus desires to fill us with his goodness. So, verse 22 goes on. It says that they, they brought to him, to Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And it seems that as this was happening, there were some Pharisees around again. So once again, we're brought into this confrontation, if you will. And they make this accusation that Jesus is only doing this by the power of Satan. That Jesus is healing by the power of Satan. And they had made this accusation before to Jesus. We read that in Matthew 9. At that point, Jesus, from what we know, he simply just sidestepped it. Now, for whatever reason, Jesus is like, oh yeah? And he's ready to like, let's, let's talk about this, guys. Let's talk about this assertion that somehow I'm doing this by the power of Satan. Because, and, and he just, like his response, it reveals reality to us first. The reality is that there is a demonic realm and that when it comes to following Jesus, there is no such thing as middle ground. Like there is no sort of like, 
well, I'm sort of following Jesus. I'm kind of following him. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're, you're with me. You're in. Or you're against me. We used to do this uh, observation years ago in youth ministry where we would have these two chairs. I won't do it. I just thought of this. I won't do it. But, but you get up on these two chairs and you start separating them more and more, right? And so, you know, if someone's like into ballet, they might like, you can stretch those things pretty far. For someone like me, it wasn't as far. And, but, but the point is, right, is that if you think you can have one foot in Jesus and one foot following the world, so to speak, and living counter to the way of Jesus, eventually that doesn't work. The chairs keep getting pulled apart. And that's, that's really what Jesus is getting at here. You, you can't kind of be with me. And so there's this thing, though, this, this accusation against him that he's under the power, he's operating within the power of Beelzebub, which was a name at that time for, for Satan and his minions. And Jesus' answer, it's, it's like what he does here to turn it around on them, it's, it's staggering and it's brilliant. Like he's like, you just see this brilliance of Jesus' response come out here. He's like, look guys, if, if that accusation is true, Satan's kingdom would be in tatters. It would be imploding on itself. And what he's saying is, look around guys, Look at all the demon possession. Look at the demonic operating. Look at the amount of healing I'm doing. Clearly, it's still operating. He's like, ha. Huh. But that's an interesting little bit of reality for us, isn't it? That the demonic exists. Jesus, he goes on to speak more about this in verses 43 to 45. We won't go into that, but... He's, he's speaking about the reality of demonic activity here. And the word there that's used here and elsewhere in the New Testament, it means demonized. It means affected by demons. Our, our society, maybe some of you right now are going, that, that is utter foolishness, Paul. I'm actually sure that that might be some of the response right now. This is, this is, I do not believe this. I do not believe that the demonic is a reality that's operating right now. We, we, have, we have created layers upon layers of reasoning in our culture to make sense of everything that is clearly evil, but we don't want to admit that it's evil. So we've got to figure out another way to define it and have categories for it. And Jesus, he takes this here in a bit of a, a different direction. To speak, he, he, so after this, he begins to then speak of the human heart. You kind of go, oh, that's an interesting direction, Jesus. And it's a stinging, stinging rebuke for the accusations against him. And he says, out of our mouths come what's in our hearts. Out of the good things or the evil things stored in us. And this is Jesus' invitation again for us into reality. Don't live in a state of unreality. Come and embrace reality. What comes out of me? 
This, this is within the context of, of Jesus addressing those who are, are speaking against him and the work of the Holy Spirit through him. And so this, these are the words then where they're set alongside where Jesus says, are you with me? Are you with me? Am I following his way? And he says, like a good tree or a bad tree, it's obvious. Right? You, you know, you know if a tree is good. It's very obvious if a tree is producing good fruit or if a tree is not producing good fruit. There's no, there's no guessing. It's like, yeah, that's, that's bad. No, that's, that's good. And, and, and from what we see, I would, I would suggest from Jesus' insinuations here, and then we consider the other times where he's spoken about him being the water of life and filling us with living water and us eating of his life and, and, and partaking of him and being sort of this idea of being full of him. I think that we can surmise that Jesus wants to fill us with these good things that he speaks of here. These good things that come out of us. That he desires to fill you with his goodness. Because the alternative isn't good. The alternative is really not good. It's like, I'm going to either fill you with good things or you're going to have really not good things, evil things come out of you. So what defines this evil that Jesus is talking about here? Well, it's, it's addressed to those who are consistently accusing Jesus and walking in deception. The, 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 they were just embracing deception. We're not going to believe, Jesus, what you're doing. No. And, the, and there was just this ongoing pattern of deception. And then it also, three times, Jesus when he's talking about this, he's talking about what's coming out of our mouths. What we speak, how we talk, we will be held accountable, he says, before God for what we say. It's, it's again, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, like talking about like the things that we might find hard or don't really like. I'm like, I don't know if I like that. Everything that comes out of my mouth, I will be held accountable for. Oh, what about the stuff I tweet or share or post? Maybe that stuff too. In verse 32 is that verse that has, has caused so much struggle, consternation, worry in people. This, this thing about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that, that it's the unforgivable sin. If you speak against the Holy Spirit... That's it. You're done. And so the people, I've, and I've had this question posed to me several times, what, what, if, what if I've sinned against the Holy Spirit? What if I have done the unpardonable sin? How do we understand this? So it says there, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So the question is, can we do this without realizing it, right? That's, that's what so many people, there's been consternation. Can I do that? I don't even realize I've done it. So a few years back, I had gone with another pastor. We had traveled on to Minneapolis 
for a conference, a pastor's conference with Desiring God. And the theme of that conference was the Christ-exalting work of the Holy Spirit. And so I was, I was pumped for, for kind of the theme of the conference. And one of the guys speaking, I was really looking forward to hearing, pastor from Oklahoma, his name's Sam Storms. And his message was on the 10 ways that we can quench the Holy Spirit. And me and this other pastor who we were with, like we, after that message, we were sitting there and we're like, whoa. We, we were so gripped. We were, we were so convicted. I think it, it, it actually stirred in us like a hunger for more of the Spirit. And we were just like, it was one of those sobering messages where you're like, I, I need, it, it, was, it was powerful <clears throat> and, and we were shaken. And it was powerful, powerful biblical truth. Like I was just, I was astounded for how powerful the biblical truth was in that message. And so we were in the bookstore afterwards and we were just walking around and we, we met this other pastor from this area who we both sort of knew a little bit. And we get talking and we're like, hey, like, what'd you think of that? Like, wow, what an amazing message. And he says, that was simply manipulation. He says, I'm more rooted in my cessationism than ever. We, we, I, I, we didn't physically take a step back, but that we were like, what? And, and not, not that, how many, of you, how many of you say, I actually don't know what cessationism is? Kids, any of you going, what, what? Okay, so cessationism is a term that is talking about that we do not believe the Holy Spirit is working or active today, that his gifts and all of the manifestations of the Spirit has ended and that was all just for the age of the apostles, and so we're not, we don't operate in any of that anymore. And he said, that's, that's what I'm, I'm more rooted in than ever. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that he was blaspheming the Holy Spirit there, but it was getting pretty close. Jesus, he said these words in response to the Pharisees attributing to Satan clearly that what they knew could only be from God. And they were attributing it to Satan. And he said, if you're doing that, what clearly is the work of my spirit, you're blaspheming. Now, this is why you say, well, why is that unforgivable? This is what John Stott says. This. I think this is brilliant in his commentary. He says, it is unforgivable not because God will not forgive, but because those who practice such deliberate self-deception cannot bring themselves to the requisite repentance. This is where it ties back to being filled with good things. Who does Jesus desire to fill us with? The Spirit, I heard. He desires to fill us with himself through the power of his spirit. And what does the spirit desire and long to produce in us? What? Good fruit. Yeah. He desires to fill us with the fruit of his spirit. That we're manifesting, that we're producing and growing this fruit. In his, in his commentary on Matthew, Michael Green, he asks this question, and it really struck me. He said, why is it, why is it that so many people reject the most wonderful person who has ever walked this earth? 
I've thought, I've thought about that. I think part of the answer is that people need to see those who are with Jesus and are following his way. They need to see those who are set free. They need to see those who have been healed and are being healed. And he needs to see those who are filled with his goodness. He needs to... People need to see followers of Jesus manifesting, flowing, operating, walking in that to see who Jesus is. How can we become those people? How can we grow to be more like that? In, our, in all of our spheres of influence, of all the things that we go out into every week, how can we manifest and show that to other people where they'd be like, there's something different. So I want to give us, leave you with five questions if you want some application out of this. First question, where do I need to be set free in areas of my life? Second question, where do I need healing from Jesus in my life? What can I do to pursue this healing? Three, am I living with a desire to be filled with the goodness of Jesus? And then question four is related to number three. Am I open and receptive to the Holy Spirit? And then five is, is where am I living out of alignment with Jesus' way revealed in these verses. And we, we had a, a bit of an issue lately again with the alignment on our car, and uh, it, was <laughs> it was giving us some issues and trying to figure out what was going on, and, and the alignment was out and couldn't figure out. And, and, you know, the alignment on your vehicle being out in just a little bit can have a huge effect on other parts of your vehicle and have, and have really bad negative effects, right? Whether it's on your tires or suspension or all sorts of other issues that crop up because your car's out of alignment. I think the same is true for our lives. Jesus desires that we would be with him. Jesus desires, be with me. Be with my way. Come and experience who I am. Why don't we pray? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are moving and working and operating right now and Father God, we know that you desire to meet with us. We know that you desire for us to come into greater and greater relationship with you. Jesus, help, help us, Lord, but, but also, Lord, would, would you move and work in us to be the people that are are set free, that are receiving healing, that are being filled with your goodness. Lord, that, that all these things where we, where we need more of you, Jesus, would you come and would you fill us? And Lord, would you, would you even apprehend us, Lord, where we are 
we're walking out of alignment with you and we're walking our own way. Jesus, would you bring us back into alignment with you and, and speak to us about those things? pray this in Jesus, in your mighty and powerful, wonderful name. Amen.